Now, it's often said that beauty is in the eye of the beholder, which makes it easy to recognise but hard to define, since your idea of what's beautiful will often be very different from mine. But what happens if the beholder is a machine? Can you program a computer to identify what's beautiful and separate it out mechanically and electronically from what's not? And in particular, can artificial intelligence, or AI, be trained to recognise beauty in the landscape? Well, researchers at Warwick Business School think it can. And in this Core Insights podcast, I'll be finding out why and how, and asking in particular how researchers here at the Business School's Data Science Lab have trained a computer to recognise beautiful scenery using so-called deep learning, an approach inspired by the architecture of the human brain. Well, I'm joined by Dr. Chinuki Saracena, who was part of the team carrying out the research, and who's a visiting researcher at the Alan Turing Institute as well. Well, first things first, why choose this as a research topic in the first place? I mean, is there an obvious practical, indeed intellectual reason for doing it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I basically started it because I was interested in quantifying the connection between beautiful places and our well-being, and especially wanted to understand what that meant in a city. And just uh, simply, I needed to generate data on where the beautiful places are, especially in a city where there's a lot of variation. And is this something that other organizations, government, local governments, data that it collects already? No, it's not um, data that's been collected already because it's actually quite costly. So if you, you can imagine if you want to um, collect data on the beauty of the environment for an entire country, that would actually be an incredibly um, costly exercise. So uh, at the moment, there might be local surveys done on a neighborhood level, but I was, at, I was especially interested in if we can actually generate this data on a large scale. Okay, so talk me through it and where you started. What were the opening stages, the photographs and so forth? So luckily, I did have a data set to start with, because that's always important when you're training these deep learning models. And it's this website called Scenic or Not, and it's this fun game you play. People just rate these images between 1 and 10, and there's an image that represents a square kilometer of Great Britain. So by the time I came across this data, I had about 200,000 images rated about 1.5 million times. So that was the data that I actually used to train the, a, a deep learning model to actually recognize beauty. What do we mean by a deep learning model? The way I'd like to explain it is that um, imagine you're trying to program a computer to understand the difference between, say, um, a zero and a six. And you can write a very long program with rules trying to differentiate between that. But it would actually, you know, take quite a lot. It'll be take a long time to actually compute that. And then you haven't actually, you know, distinguished between one and sevens. So one of the ways you can actually write an algorithm is to not you know, specify rules, but you can actually, you know, ask it to learn the rules by itself. And these kind of algorithms are called machine learning algorithms, and you might have heard that already. And deep learning algorithms are basically, they actually use neural networks, which are inspired by how we think um, the neurons in our brain work. And therefore, they actually are incredibly clever, especially with computer vision tasks. So they actually learn the rules by themselves. And can you just go a little more deeply into this whole notion that the model of the human brain provides a kind of resource for the computer itself? Yeah, so these models are inspired by how we think 
the brain works. It doesn't actually mimic anywhere near, you know, how the brain actually works. Because I think we don't really know. Um, so, and the different types of neural networks, some work for images, some work for text. I specifically work with um, an algorithm called convolutional neural networks, and they're very good with vision tasks. And they basically are, are pattern seeking um, algorithms. So they look for patterns within images, and that's how they learn to recognize certain images belonging to say a certain category, or say in this case, how beautiful it might be. Because I was going to ask you what the MIT Places Convolutional Neural Network is, CNN I believe, for short. I mean, is this an existing program? Is it public? Is it private? Or is it being developed or what? Um, yes, it's actually public and you can uh, anybody can use it. And this is what I used in my research to begin with. Because first of all, I want to understand, you know, from the images from Scenic or not, what beautiful place is actually composed of. So I used this uh, convolutional neural network from MIT called Places. And it's basically this um, algorithm that's been trained on millions of images to understand different types of place categories. So it can recognize whether there's a you know, mountain in the picture, an ocean in the picture, um, like a train station, um, lots of different types of, you know, it's not just uh, natural scenes, it's also um, built up scenes as well. Uh, and this is deciding or sifting out what's beautiful, what's deemed beautiful and what's not. So then I actually use that algorithm to then teach it to then detect how beautiful it is. So the MIT places algorithm can detect the place, but it cannot detect a beauty. It's not uh, made to do that. But what I did is I can actually train on top of that. So there's a technique called transfer learning where you can actually train a neural network to do something very similar. So I train that network to instead of predicting the place category, such as mountain, ocean, or courtyard, or train station, to instead predict the beauty of a place. And so I basically, like I said before, um, the way you train these algorithms is by giving it label data. So the label data comes from scenic or not. And you basically treat, you, you, you teach these algorithms and in some ways the way you would teach a child to tell the difference between a cat or a dog. And you show them a picture, this is a cat, this is a dog, and eventually you know, the child understands the difference. It's the same way with the algorithm. You just show it um, multiple examples and it starts to learn what you know is beautiful and what's not beautiful. We'll come on to that in a moment, but let's just for now stick with the brain again. Um, you concede that individual ideas of beauty are likely to be shaped by personal, cultural, social experience, but you also suggest in addition that our preferences might be shaped by evolution as well. How do you mean? Yeah, so I was basically, when I was first thinking about doing this uh, project, I was I didn't actually think it could work, um, but then I started reading um, different uh, theories, and one of these theories is about Jay Appleton's prospect and refuge theory, and in that theory, he suggests that maybe we prefer scenes that we could see out to the wide um, uh, horizon, as well as scenes that we might find cozy, and these are shaped by our evolution, because it's basically driven by safety. There's also Appleton's biophilia hypothesis, which also says that we like um, you know, certain na natural features, for example, fruit bearing or climbable trees. So these are, tr and you can see that we prefer these um, certain features because they can, could have also aided our survival. So the idea is that perhaps there are kind of collective preferences of beauty that are shaped by our evolution, and that's why we prefer them. Now, is there an inbuilt assumption that beauty in the landscape will always be natural, not human formed? 
There has been for ages. It's always, you know, nature is beautiful and bilderberries are, are not beautiful. And I actually wanted to, to, to test whether that assumption was correct. And so when we were actually analyzing the images from Scenic or not, remember using the MIT places, we found some really surprising results. So we did find things that were intuitive, that people do like scenes like mountain, ocean, trees, and lakes. But we also found that people also like built up um, characteristics as well, such as cottage castle, lighthouses, as well as bridge-like structures such as viaduct and aqueduct. Because as you say, there are things in the built environment that are beautiful too, and many things in the natural environment that aren't. The machine's now trained to spot the difference. Yeah, so the machine can actually tell the difference because it's learning by what we've actually told the machine. So, you know, the data is coming from Scenic or not. Uh, people have anonymously rated these images of whether they're beautiful or not. And it turns out, collectively, we do seem to prefer uh, built-up settings as well, not just natural settings. Because you tried it out on landmarks in London and said that, you know, while Hampstead Heath or Richmond Park were obviously judged beautiful, so too were Big Ben and the Tower of London. So the machine is learning to distinguish. Yeah, absolutely. So I just, for fun, I basically gave the algorithm about 200,000 images from an, a website called Geograph uh, that collects documentary images of our environment. And I, I just wanted to see if it could intuitive, if, if it can pick up things that I intuitively also find beautiful or other people also find intuitively beautiful. And it did pick up, of course, you know, the parks, like Regent's Park, Hampstead Heath. But what I, I was really um, fascinated to find that it also found these built up areas, for example, like Big Ben, the area around Big Ben, also the Tower of London. And um, the one thing that I found was uh, really interesting was there was this like path of images it, it had picked. So I was trying to figure out what this path was and turns out it's Regent's Canal. So it's really clever that it can actually understand beauty in this very wide uh, variety. Would it be capable though of assessing the beauty in modern architecture, for example, where you know something by, by definition has never appeared before, it's new, it's unusual. Can a computer recognize its beauty? That one's a little bit tricky. So again, because the algorithm has learned by images, I've already fed it, and we only have very little images of modern architecture. At the moment, I'm not 100% sure it will do a good job with modern architecture. Um, so that's a problem with these deep learning algorithms. They're not good at understanding how to, to do anything new because they've just purely learned by what we've told them, told the algorithm. Because what you said earlier was interesting. You know, it's how you, you tell a child that this is a cat, this is a dog. Is there a sense in which, at the moment, it's really quite basic? So the words in the built environment are castle, church, tower, cottage, and more. And then in the natural world, valley, coast, mountain, tree. It's a bit basic so far, isn't it? It's basic insofar as it, it can only learn from what we've given it. Um, so the categories such as cottage, castle um, and tower, that's coming from the MIT places. And they basically chose some basic categories because they weren't, you know, they weren't looking for, they were just trying to create an algorithm that can understand certain scenes. So they stuck with about a few hundred categories that were just simple. But the algorithm that's actually learning how to um, understand beauty might actually pick up categories that are not within that set because so the machine learns rules on its own. We don't actually always know what the rules are. So it can be picking up something quite nuanced. 
but nonetheless, it's only learned from what we've given it. So if you take a word like viaduct, for example, which you did, how could the machine distinguish between some terrible structure in an industrial landscape that's crumbling apart and, say, the magnificent Ribble Head viaduct in Yorkshire or even the Pont du Gard in the south of France? I mean, an aqueduct, I know, but you get the idea. Yeah, absolutely. So... Again, all I need to do is give it different images of viaducts that we've rated. And if we find one viaduct being more beautiful and another viaduct not being more beautiful, the algorithm will simply just learn by what we've told it. And similarly, grass might look beautiful on a rolling hillside in the Lake District, but not on a municipal football pitch at the edge of town. So how would a machine learn to spot the difference? Yeah, I was actually fascinated by that finding, actually. So another thing that we found that is that people actually don't seem to like flat areas of grass. So that, can, you know, that came up from our analysis. And again, it's, this, it's basically learning from our preferences. So it recognized that if it saw an image that was, you know, with valley contours or trees and, and still green, that we were actually rating that higher. And it learned that we were actually rating, you know, images, even though it's purely green but just if but it was flat it it realized that we were actually rating it lower so it learned from us that we just don't like flat areas of grass and this is a bit of a low blow and i don't know whether it's strictly academic would it spot the difference between grass and artificial grass um I'm not sure. I haven't actually tried that. Um, So the machines, it's interesting because the machines don't necessarily see in the same way that we do. So it might look at artificial grass and actually not recognize it at all. Um, I haven't tried that, but that would be really interesting. So even though we see artificial grass and we can see it being very similar, as a machine sees differently to us, it's a mystery what it'll think. (laughs) We will see. In the meantime, what are the practical applications of this? The practical application I found for myself personally was that it enabled me to do uh, more research, looking at the connection between beautiful places and our well-being, especially in an urban environment, because within one kilometer, um, there's quite a lot of variation. And I can actually use this algorithm to then predict beauty on a, on a more fine-tuned scale and then start understanding how beauty might affect other things. So, for example... You know, are we happier when we visit a more beautiful area? Um, By the way, the answer is yes. (laughs) And that holds in a built-up area as well. So I think it will just enable more researchers to look at things um, that about how urban design might actually affect um, various aspects of human behaviour. And presumably this sort of data has been collected in the past, albeit in much smaller um, quantities. How's it been traditionally collected? Traditionally, we had to collect this data via surveys. So, you know, you'd basically go around uh, in a neighborhood and ask people, you know, what they thought of, you know, their neighborhood beauty. So it was actually very difficult um, to actually collect this data on a large scale. So um, what I'm absolutely fascinated is these um, neural networks can allow us to actually collect data on a massively large scale, plus in an entire country. Um, which is something that we just couldn't do before. So the big thing is speeding up the process with much, much more stuff, data. Yeah, absolutely. So basically enabling us to collect data at a more rapid scale. Now, this is perhaps taking it off from your research, but just thinking to the future, if a machine can be trained to recognise beauty in the landscape, can it be trained to recognise beauty in people, faces, bodies? It probably can do. Again... If we train it on images of what people think are beautiful, it probably could learn that. But it's something that I 
don't necessarily want to do. And I think as a researcher, as an AI practitioner, we do have to think about the ethical implications of the things we create. And personally, I don't. I just don't like the idea. <laughs> because you're there before me, really. Um, isn't there a downside? potentially to all this, namely in some of the facial recognition technology being deployed in China or indeed in parts of Britain, which is sometimes operating without our knowledge or and or our permission. Yeah, absolutely. So I think every time, like as an AI practitioner, if you're going to create an algorithm, I think it's important to think through what this algorithm could be used for. So for example, if we're recognizing the beauty of people, that could be used for things that are just a bit unsavory. So I don't feel comfortable with that. I feel comfortable with creating an algorithm that could um, look at the beauty of an environment because we do make uh, public policy decisions based on what we want to build or what we want to destroy, for example. And so it's, it's important to understand, you know, as a collective um, group, what do we consider to be beautiful or not? So if we can, you know, use an algorithm to help us understand that, um, then that's, that's useful. Now, another question occurs to me. We've talked about AI spotting beauty in the natural landscape. Can it spot landscape beauty on canvas, in a painting, in a museum, an art gallery? Yes, absolutely. There's no reason that it shouldn't be able to also pick up landscape beauty as well. The only thing is that we would need to teach it again how to actually recognize landscapes in a painting. And that's the funny thing about these AI algorithms. If you if you train it on images like photography images, because it doesn't look, see things the same way we see them, it'll look at a landscape painting and still have no idea what it is. So at the moment, it wouldn't be able to spot the difference between, say, a constable and a sort of chocolate box painted by a Sunday afternoon amateur? No, absolutely not. I wouldn't be able to tell the difference. I think it's interesting as well just discussing whether um, AI can be trained to, to, to understand the beauty of art because I think it's picking up the beauty of our scenery because we can actually find like a collective understanding. There are things that we actually kind of agree on. But of course, when it comes to art, <laughs> there are so many varying opinions. It would be really interesting that if we actually could train um, an AI to actually understand the beauty of art when, you know, we as humans, we don't actually agree or it seems like we don't actually agree. So it would be rather difficult then programming a computer to spot the difference again between Constable and Turner. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's because we're basically trying to help it understand um, what we collectively find more beautiful. And if there is disagreement, then the AI algorithm is just going to get confused because it's it's not, you know, at the moment, AI isn't that smart. It's basically learning from us. But if we if we're trying to teach an algorithm to do something where we don't we disagree, then it's going to get very confused. We're actually like introducing noise into the system. So how would you see your work actually informing public decisions, whether it's local councils or indeed central government decisions? Would, would there be a department with a big computer or what? Well, I think what's really interesting right now is that we do make decisions about what we're going to design, you know, what we're going to preserve, and they tend to be based on just a few people's opinions. Um, you know, it could be kind of the mayor of the city, it could be, you know, the, the architects, it could be like the urban developers, the urban planners. Um, but what's interesting about these algorithms is that we can actually combine the opinions of thousands of people. So remember that it's actually learned from us, but it's learned from, you know, the 1.5 million ratings that have been provided by users. So we can actually understand on a whole what we consider beautiful. So when we do make these public policy decisions, they don't have to rely on just a couple of people's hunches. Instead, we might be able to start making decisions based on what might be 
good for the people that are actually going to be living there, for example. But I mean, isn't there a philosophical problem at the heart of this? And it's, it's where, where we began, really. Who says what's beautiful? If it's in the eye of the beholder, then it's an entirely individual and personal judgment, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, there is definitely individual preferences. And so you, you can't say that everybody's going to find um, everything beautiful in exactly the same way. However, in public spaces, we do make decisions based on what we think might be good for the majority of people that kind of interact with that environment. So in some ways, we do have to also understand what collectively we might find beautiful, even though within that there might be some variations as well. So is it really quantifying beauty? Is that what you're doing? Yes, I am quantifying it because I think it does. There are enough signals of what what we collectively find beautiful. I think we just have to be careful. So I would never go so far as to say, you know, only yellow is beautiful, uh, only you know, as opposed to blue, or not not being too specific. And that's what I like the idea, the fact that you know maybe these preferences are driven by evolution because we can have broader ideas so for example we might like a space where we can view out in the horizon we might not like um, a space that's claustrophobic and that's something that you know most people can agree on and i think there's a few principles that we can say and most people will agree on and then but let let's still continue to have the variety because we don't want a landscape landscapes that look exactly the same and i suppose you are conceding that beauty has a purpose there is something behind it. it it makes us feel better it makes us feel more relaxed happier or whatever there is a tangible benefit to a beautiful environment Absolutely. So in my research, I've looked at the connection between beautiful places and our reported health using data from the census. And I found that we do actually report uh, better health when we live in more beautiful areas. This holds in urban areas as well. I also looked at data on our happiness using the mobile phone app Mappiness um, data. And I found that when we visit more beautiful areas, we also do report more happiness. Um, And this again does hold in built up areas. So there does seem to be, um, you know, a good reason to actually look at beauty. So are you in the happiness business, uh, the health business, the aesthetic business or what? Um, Well, I'm in the aesthetics business because that's what I love. I I really love working in neural networks. So um, when I'm not doing my research, I also work as a commercial data scientist for Popsa, where we're using AI to automatically help uh, people create uh, photo books. So basically, again, trying to understand a lot about the images and the aesthetics and how to kind of lay that out into a beautifully designed book. And what is this telling us about human behavior? I mean, a lot of this is done under the umbrella of the business school's behavioral sciences department. What what new things is it telling us? Not necessarily telling us anything new, but maybe something, the surprising thing is how much we can quantify human behavior. And I think that's kind of been surprising um, that, you know, we think we're all individuals, but actually there's some things that we, we actually all do quite similar and actually can predict. And that always kind of surprises me sometimes when I think I'm an individual and nobody can predict what I do. And actually algorithms can. In what way? Give me a few examples. Uh, so an example I could just think of um, just um, immediately is because um, I've just always loved to listen to music. And I'm always surprised how Spotify can actually suggest something new that I've never heard of. And it's basically kind of just learned from my preferences of things I like and then can also then show me something new that I wouldn't have actually noticed before. And of course, artificial intelligence, deep learning, as opposed to just programming a a computer in the way it might have been done 50 years ago, is taking our understanding much deeper. It's, It's learning from its mistakes and doing stuff that we perhaps don't know it's doing. Um, yeah, these algorithms can actually be quite powerful. 
So it's it's quite amazing what they can learn. Um, but it's also true that we don't always understand why it does make the predictions they do because they do it in such complex ways. So you might have heard some, sometimes people talk about these models being a bit too black box. And that's um, so, you know, if they are making um, kind of controversial decisions, for example, on, you know, if somebody's going to, you know, commit a crime or not, then perhaps these algorithms shouldn't be used. So they could actually do a really good job of predicting them, but we don't always understand why they're doing it. So, yeah, it is it's still quite a new field. And I think we still need to understand how these algorithms work. So closing the circle and perhaps coming back to where we began, where do you see the technology that you've been developing understanding what beauty is, recognizing it in a machine way. Where do you see it going in the future? Well, what I would really like it to kind of contribute to is basically into decisions of planning, because at the moment we make planning decisions based on the hunches of just a few people. And I would like there to be a bit more um, democracy in planning. So you can imagine, because all these algorithms are doing are just synthesizing, you know, thousands of people's opinions, that we can, you know, if we want to build something in a new area, we can actually use these algorithms to combine the knowledge of all the people that live there and then learn how to build something that would actually benefit them. So it's kind of a very different way that we might actually approach planning. So it's no longer a hunch of a couple of human beings, but instead we use algorithms to help us understand what actually might be beneficial to the people that actually live there. But will we be able to contest the machine's findings if it says it's beautiful and you say, well, it isn't actually? Will we override it? I think it's always important to override uh, decisions that a machine makes that are not sensible. I don't think anybody should ever count on a machine 100% because they do actually make mistakes. So I think it's good that we can use these algorithms to inform us, but that doesn't mean that we just only listen to it and then that's that's the end of it. I think we, they should inform us and if we, you know, think the decision is sensible and it's interesting, we can pursue it. If there's something that's blatantly wrong, then yes, it's definitely worth going back and looking at why did the algorithm do this. It's perhaps <laughs> the moral disagree. that it's perhaps the moral that was drawn at the end of uh, 2001 a space odyssey when it was decided to pull the plug on how Oh yeah, I absolutely love that film and I think it's, it is very interesting that we should never blindly trust algorithms, that we still uh, are also um, intelligent um, human beings and we should still also use our intelligence as well. Well that's certainly a reassuring note on which to end. Dr. Chinuki Saracena, thank you. And you can read more about behavioural science on the Warwick Business School website, along with articles on healthcare management, finance, strategy, leadership, entrepreneurship and innovation. I'm Trevor Barnes, and this has been a Core Insights podcast for Warwick Business School.